The following Dharma talk was given at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Seems always good at the beginning of a Buddhist awareness retreat, a retreat that's really interested in what the Buddha was pointing to, because it's kind of a provocative approach to our human existence, um, just summarizing in my own words the Buddha's teachings, which, you know, or is this pointing that there's something about being intimate with the way it is that's liberating? And that's really provocative because it's really emphasizing that the at the very heart of freedom, awakening, being a good human being, a free, compassionate, skillful human being, at the heart of it isn't so much I need a different situation or I need to fix something, but it really comes down to how the heart or how the mind, how the knowing is knowing this moment. Not what's being known, not the particular circumstances, but how the heart is showing up. And I, I'm, I'm guessing that is provocative for you, and I think it's appropriate for us to be a little bit shocked or suspicious of that pointing out that it can be liberating. The way the mind relates can be liberating, irregardless or regardless of what the mind is knowing, what the circumstances are. Um, Steve Armstrong and Kamala Masters and Deborah Ratner and a bunch of other people um, have translated, retranslated Mahasi Sayadaw's instructions during World War II when that part of Burma was being badly bombed by the Japanese, um, probably felt like the end of the world. It was evidently really a bad scene. Mahasi Saida, in a very short period of time, wrote this manual of insight. And uh, it's it's not everyone's cup of tea, that book, Um, but there's a couple chapters in it really breaking down in a systematic, clear way what the Buddha is asking us to do. And he has this, uh, Mahasi has this very interesting sentence um, when he's talking about mindfulness as a factor of awakening. He writes, the noting mind, and you could say the knowing mind or the noting mind, seems to sink into the object. Now that's what it makes sense. The knowing, knowing mind, the noting mind connects with the object, sinks in, is intimate with, right? Then he goes and he writes, and the objects, and the object seems to sink into the noting mind, into the knowing mind. And then he writes, the commentary says that this noting, this knowing is characterized by a mental state that dips its mental constituents 
into the object. Now that's a sort of a funny phrase. That's why I said it's not everyone's cup of tea. But and then he goes on to talk about this is really the points to the kind of the quality of freedom that's essentially there with awareness. And I, the way I would translate this is what awakening, what freedom there is for us ordinary, beastly human beings, messy human beings in this messy world. The freedom is really in how the heart is relating in the present moment, like in denial or hating what's going on or dependent attached to what's going on, or intimate without an agenda, or intimate with the agenda to take care of everything, intimate with fearlessness. So the nice thing about that is any moment then becomes a bit of a laboratory for us to explore the possibility of freedom. But we need at least an open mind that this moment is suitable for that investigation or that possibility of real freedom, not intellectual freedom or theoretical, philosophical freedom, but an actual visceral, let's say, transformation of any hardness, any tightness, any resistance, any heaviness that we're experiencing. So that that's kind of a setup for us. We have to take that leap of faith. Like we can review today, how many moments today in our practice of walking or sitting or eating our lunch or whatever it might have been, was there <clears throat> an open heart, an open mind about the possibility of freedom here and now? I mean, if you're like me, I have this deeply entrenched, arrogant sense, well, this isn't it. You know, this isn't the happy mark. Later, when I get my act together, when I get my practice together, then possibly I can be happy, I can be free, I can be loving, but not now, because I'm still a bad retreatant. I haven't become the good retreatant yet. You know that feeling? It's sort of like we're pretty convinced that I'm not okay yet. Anybody think there are? It would feel inappropriate to answer the question. Like, anybody feel like you're there? Oh, no, 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 not me. (laughs) I'm not there yet. I'm still a struggling Buddhist practitioner, deluded, caught up in greed, anger, and delusion, you know, practicing in order to become free. And we have this strong and arrogant idea that I'm here at the bottom of the mountain. I don't even know really where the mountain is. I just know with arrogant certainty that I'm not at the top of the mountain. And I'm just slogging through the marsh and the tree cover is so thick I don't even have an idea if I'm going toward the mountain, away from the mountain, going in circles. We feel comfortable with that sort of point of view. It's like interesting how often that identity, that 
fixed idea goes unquestioned. Now, I'm not suggesting that we start pretending that I'm the all-seeing one, (laughs) the perfect one. There's a funny story in the suttas and the discourses where the Buddha, shortly after his deep insight under the Bodhi tree, it is the first person he runs into after his big awakening, evidently, uh, according to the legend or stories. But And uh, the person sort of is a little bit awestruck by the Buddha's presence, you know, and says uh, something to the effect, who are you? <laughs> and the Buddha launches into this sort of statement about the all-seeing one. And the person asks, like, who are you and who's your teacher? And the Buddha, you know, just talks about being all-seeing, all-knowing, and uh, who would, who could be in need of a teacher or something <laughs> really outrageous like that. And the, and the person, I love this about the Buddhist tradition, that they kept this little story in there. And this person goes, may it be so, and it says that he left by the sort of sideway so as to avoid <laughs> too much contact with the Buddha. Like, who knows? but I don't feel so comfortable around you right now. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, he was walking to find some of his friends who he thought might be able to understand what had had happened and the Buddha wanted to share. And I like to think that in those days of walking alone along the road to find his old Dharma friends, practice friends, that he thought through like what, what he might say that might actually be useful Right, And what it really comes down to, what the Buddha said over and over again over his 45 years of teaching, is some version of it all comes down to how the mind is relating to the present moment. And as an ordinary, busy human being, we tend not to weigh that very heavily. We don't think that's important, how the mind is relating. What we think is important is what the mind is relating to, the experience that's happening, the emotion that I'm knowing, the sound I'm hearing, the sight I'm seeing, the sensations I'm feeling. The object seems really important. When we pay attention to the knowing, the way the mind is knowing, we see this thing that Mahasi side or this process that Mahasi Saida was pointing to, that the object that's being known and the knowing, the mind that's relating, that's relating to the object that's being known, they affect each other. So the knowing starts to have some of the characteristics of the object that's being known. And the object starts to have characteristics of the knowing. And what are those two things, right? There's both the um, rawness and wildness, right? So the experience, the object that's being known, brings this quality of wildness. We often use the word anicca, which gets usually translated as impermanence. But it's not just that things are changing, but that things are uncertain, unpredictable, unreliable, ungovernable. They're wild. Nature, every object, 
that the mind knows, that the heart opens to, is wild. It's in motion. And that motion isn't controlled by anybody. It's wild. The present moment, the objects of the present moment are wild. So that's very enlivening, that wildness. Just like real wilderness is enlivening, or when you're in a new situation, falling in love with a new person, or traveling, or whatever it might be that's new, right? We feel quite alive because we don't know what the heck's going to go on, what's going to happen next. And the hair stands on the back of the neck, and the mind becomes naturally alert without me practicing being alert. I'm just alert because it's new, it's unknown, it's wild. So the, that coming together of knowing and the object, we get the wildness of the object, and we get the emptiness of the knowing mind. Because the knowing mind, knowing, is never stained, never weighed down or contaminated by what's being known. There's something about the knowing. Now, this is subtle, and you can just sort of play with this these, these days. So the knowing gives the object, it sort of removes the stickiness of whatever the object of our experience. And the experience gives to the knowing mind a life the wildness of life, the mystery, freedom from the wrong idea of somebody being in control, right? Or freedom from the wrong idea that somebody's being screwed by life, by the experience, by the object, or that someone's being blessed by the pleasant object, right? Because the object is sort of demonstrating to the knowing mind over and over again the uncertainty, the unreliability, the ungovernableness. Ain't nothing here to grasp. Nobody can build anything on this. And the knowing is giving to the object a sense of nobody, nothing to be stained. And that's the freedom, that coming together. And any moment is fine, but we have to be interested not in experiencing our experience from the story of my life, what's happening to me, but in this more immediate way. And that's really the point of mindfulness. Mindfulness really is cultivating this coming together of knowing and the experience that's being known in a very simple way, in a very pure way. And remember, mindfulness isn't a thing. It's really a capacity of the mind. Uh, Gil Fransdahl likens it to faith. You know, faith isn't, confidence isn't something you can do. Okay, I think I'll be confident now. I'll have faith now. Right? We can't, I mean, you can maybe pretend, but that's not faith when we're pretending to have faith or confidence. Right? But it's a capacity that can be developed. And mindfulness is a capacity or a potential that can be developed. 
It's a particular way of relating. So we're training or we're cultivating this capacity to be relating in a very particular way. And this particular way is is more about what's not there. This capacity is more about what's not there than what's there. So although we use words that, like I'm doing tonight to talk about mindfulness, it's more like when you're working with your breath or you're working with your body or you're working with a strong emotion that's predominant in your sit or your walk or you're working with an irritating sound or you're working with a lot of calm, a lot of wholesome inner qualities that might have come up, right? Like I was saying, it's really about relating, not not a particular quality, but this capacity to be intimate without anything extra. And you can just check, you know, like anything will do, but something simple like touching our hand or if your hand's already on your thigh, just feel that simple experience of touch. And then for everyone doing this, we're just tuning into some simple physical contact that's apparent now in your field of experience. And you see, we have this capacity to open to that contact, which is just the knowing mind, knowing that particular object of experience. And then the practice is keeping it really simple, allowing anything extra about, like the thought, I'm not doing it right. Is this what he means? Like, so that little doubt don't let that affect or change. To keep remembering, right? So this in mindfulness, the word sati itself is related to remembering. We're remembering to keep it simple. We're remembering that there's this very simple, natural capacity to just know contact, in this case, right? Just know sensation. And when and as other reverberations come in, like judgments or doubt about that simple experience of touch, the practice is remembering to not be confused by that extra stuff. But the way I practice not being confused is I keep the contact itself in mind. And even more than the touch, the warmth of the touch or the hardness or softness of the touch, actually, even more than that is what I was talking about a few minutes ago, the wildness and the freedom, the emptiness. You could say even the simplicity of that experience itself. The touch is kind of a doorway. You know, it's a more concrete In Buddhism, we call those like the specific characteristics of that experience, like the warmth of the touch or the softness of the touch or the smoothness of that physical sensation. So that kind of gets me in the ballgame of practice, those specific characteristics. Just like with hearing, there are specific characteristics of hearing a sound, the pitch 
of the sound, the loudness of it, you know, those sorts of things. But there's something more subtle, this way the mind is knowing, the way the mind is needing or being intimate, the relationship itself is also something happening in the present moment, right? That dance between the object that's being known and the knowing of the object. And in a way, in Buddhism or in Dharma, that's reality, right? That very simple, and it's happening moment by moment, that very simple knowing of an object. And remember last night when I was briefly talking about the refuge, Buddha knowing Dhamma, we're talking about that place. And, you know, we have these sort of um, ritual objects around the building. But in early Buddhism, the thing we're really devoted to is that Buddha knowing Dhamma. That's actually, and, and symbols are kind of pointers to this interesting place of liberation where the mind really respects this capacity to meet experience in this simple way and getting interested in this simple way of being, relating with whatever object. Does the object matter? Any object will do. It could be a really pleasant, wholesome object. It could be a really negative mind state, disturbing sound. I don't know if people heard somebody's, I think iPhone was playing a song in the middle of the sit, this last sit. Maybe you noticed. Um, people coming for the what is usually happens on Friday night, the mindfulness and recovery group, not realizing that it was canceled because of the year-end retreat. And so these objects of experience just sort of show up, some pleasant, some unpleasant, some neutral, whatever they might be. And as a practitioner, we're interested, it's like that question, is there, what does freedom here look like? Is there freedom here? Or is this a problem, a personal problem that the radar's on? Or that this is happening? Or personal salvation, too. Or is it just the possibility, the real possibility of freedom? And so that kind of, we have to use the grossness of the specific characteristics as a doorway to begin to contemplate that relationship, that coming together of knowing and the object that's being known. And as I mentioned, you know, to get us in that ball game, we have phrases and questions you can ask. What's being known? What's the mind knowing? Can this be okay? We're not demanding that the mind that's knowing this object, that it make it okay. We're just curious. Like, can something beautiful, is there something beautiful in how the mind can show up with this object, this experience right now? Is there anything in the way of that being free? Of there being freedom there? And it's really, this is the the reason the Buddha talks about sati having the flavor of freedom 
right? Because otherwise we're just in this game of there's a somebody who has to get somewhere in order to be free. But that's not what the Buddha taught, and that's not our experience when we pay attention, right? A lot of times when we bump into freedom, just ordinary moments where the heart feels released, light, and there's this, not that you articulate it this way always, but there's just a sense that it's really okay. But the conditions of our life, our health, what people think about us, that hasn't necessarily changed. But there's just this feeling like, yeah, yes, life is workable, it's okay. But then we usually tell a story about why it's okay. Well, this person smiled at me, or, you know, I won the lottery, or, you know, whatever it might be. But that's not necessarily true. It's just that the kind of habit of the mind needs a story. Because we don't believe, it doesn't sort of fit our story that freedom is inherent. It's not dependent. Can we be a dying human being or somebody losing someone we love and be free? I bet there are people in the room that have had outwardly what we'd call really difficult circumstances, but in those moments felt, experienced actual freedom. And certainly some of us have had really favorable circumstances and were really miserable, you know? So we want to really challenge the sort of prevailing conditioning. And really, if you're here, you are already doing this. You're challenging that prevailing tendency to think that happiness comes because of particular conditions or objects of experience. And this is really helpful because when we're on retreat and we're sitting and we're feeling the body and we're walking and we're aware of the walking and all the other predominant experiences that are coming and going, without this enlivening investigation about freedom, the possibility of freedom, and you can substitute different words for freedom, true love, compassion, the unshakable release of the heart, wisdom, peace, But if we're not at least willing to be open to the possibility of that, as Kamala, one of the people I teach with and a long-term, long-time mentor and teacher of mine, Kamala Masters, says this, uh, quotes a lot from the tradition, the heart's sure release or the sure release of the heart or the unshakable release of the heart. This is from the... Artwood, the sutta or discourse the Buddha is talking about, what really matters in the end, that's sure heart's release. So if we're not open to that possibility, then we're kind of, the tendency is just to go through the motions and try to survive until the end of the retreat so we can go home. And then at least, you know, we check the box. Well, it was a good thing to do. I knew it was a good thing to do, and I did it. So then we do feel a little bit better about ourselves, but we're still in that sort of mode that I'm a deluded human being practicing in order to be free. 
And it has real consequences, that unquestioned belief. So just, uh, you know, for each of us to, you know, each time we're starting over, like have been distracted, lost in thought, and then we kind of come back and we realize, oh yeah, there's a body here, there's a sensitive heart here, there's a thinking mind here, there's this life, this coming and going of experience. And to be really quick to catch the old story that is repeated so often that we don't realize it's a story that gets repeated. Some version of, oh, poor me, or I'm no good, or I am good. Some kind of conceit. But it's so repeated so often, we don't catch it as, that's just the next thing being known. And once we have the basic flavor of mindfulness, which again, to operationalize what we mean by mindfulness, we're just talking about something being known. That moment-to-moment relating, or that moment-to-moment coming together of experience and knowing. That's actually reality, and that's what we care about. We care about reality. And reality, subjectively, what reality is for each of us is a moment-to-moment something being known. And that's basically all we can say about it. Something is being known. Something is being felt. Something is being experienced, right? Isn't that an honest, you know, just if we're going to verbalize or conceptualize our subjective situation as a human being, saying that which comes down to something being known, something being felt, and now this is being known, and now this is being known. And so we really highlight that moment of relating the sensitive heart, sensing whatever is being experienced in that moment, because it's just the summation of all of those ephemeral moments of something being known that is my life. So we need to deeply value, even though it's subtle and ephemeral, because as soon as this moment is being known, it's already gone because there's another moment being known. It's an endless flow, right? We may not like that, but that's actually our reality as a human being, is that endless flow. And the best word that sort of captures or points, helps the mind be interested, is this, I like this word relating or interrelating. Right? It, that is our reality, is this mind relating to this, to now, to the experience. And when we bring it into view, when we value that, when we're devoted, heartfelt devotion to the simplicity of this is being known, it's like this now. Then we notice, we start to notice the difference between that knowing being colored or weighed down by greed, anger, and delusion, and that knowing being empty of greed, anger, and delusion, being free of unnecessary weight, unnecessary entanglement. Now, 
even though I'm guessing none of us are fully awake, haven't uprooted, we haven't, I don't think, anybody here has completely uprooted the tendency to be neurotic, but probably today there were moments when that moment, a moment of knowing, this is being known, was relatively uncontaminated by greed, by hate, by fear, by distraction. And the taste, the flavor of that moment was freedom. But we need like this devotion, this stabilizing, balancing the mind so it can actually keep this subtle, relatively subtle reality of this is being known in mind so that we can discern the difference between being a suffering being because the mind isn't empty of all of those entanglements and being a liberated being, a being free of those entanglements, one moment at a time. And this is a much better picture than thinking of enlightened beings. Oh, this person is an enlightened being. Instead of that, to think of enlightened moments. There are enlightened moments, and some people have more of those enlightened moments, and some people less. But lightened moments, enlightened moments, moments of relating are available in any moment for anybody. And sometimes they just happen, in a sense, accidentally, the conditions are just right. And so the mind that's knowing, whatever it's knowing, in that moment is free of greed, anger, and delusion, or any of the entangling habits. And that person has a moment of freedom, whether that's recognized or not. I mean, one of the nice things about hanging around experienced teachers is to realize not just kind of, as best you can in observing them, sense moments when their mind, heart, seems relatively unencumbered by greed, anger, and delusion, but to realize it's moment to moment. And some of those moments, they are a deluded being or an angry being or a greedy being. It isn't just like, pure awakening. At least I haven't run into those people yet. And that's when you want to test them. (laughs) (laughs) One person I was really into right when I was getting started, uh, this very well-known Indian sage, uh, Swami Shivananda. He died in like 1964. But I had this sort of, I don't know if it was karmic or what, but early on, even though I was doing a lot of Buddhist practice, I ran into four significant teachers, all here in the States, but all were students of this Indian man who never came to the United States, uh, Swami Shivananda. And so I I took it as a sign, and I really studied a lot of his writings, and uh, he's a very wonderful, interesting person, and had a a famous ashram up in Rishikesh in northern India. But uh, he had a, like a test, like if if you think someone's enlightened, because like, he said there's only one true sign, and that's a sense of humility. Right? And he said you need to do the SB40 test. And I don't know if you know this about Indian culture, but shoes are considered really dirty in India. So shoe beating 40 times. Take a shoe, 
hit the person 40 times and observe what happens. <laughs> and you might get a sense of how they're doing with their practice. I'm not sure you were serious. But that's, that's kind of, right, that, in terms of just assessing our own, like in our role, Shelley and I, when, you know, we're meeting with groups and one-on-ones quite a bit, and one of the things that we hear from people that's uh, really inspiring for me is this very consistent, like, people self-reporting how their confidence that their practice is paying off. They'll say something like that. If this had happened 10 years ago, I would be really suffering. But it happened, and I'm okay. I mean, it's not what I want to happen. But I'm not thrown off. I'm not. My mind's not confused. It isn't this dead weight in my heart. Some version of that. And I bet a lot of us, maybe all of us, could say that, at least in some places in our life, that the cumulative effect of the practice is a lot of freedom. Things that would have entangled us, burdened us, confused our mind, are less burdensome, less confusing, less entangling. So if we can move from A to B, why can't we move from A to Z, where nothing confuses, nothing entangles the mind? Our own death, the death of our loved ones, you know, crazy things happening in, the, in our heart or around us, that we just take everything as something being known, show up as skillfully as we can, contribute, respond as skillfully as we can, and then the next, and then the next moment, and then the next moment, just repeating that over and over again. Always meeting the moment with this whole, full, intimate presence, and without, like, I'm going to meet the moment with this full presence so I can figure... We don't even need that agenda so I can be skillful, right? It's like, because that gets in the way of being fully present. We just give ourselves to the relating, the purity. By purity, I mean simplicity of relating. We can't have even the relatively wholesome agenda if I really am present, if I'm really intimate, then I'll know what to do. It's actually true. <laughs> it's the best strategy. You know, if, we, if you have a sticky situation in your life and you really intend, resolve to be present, to really feel both in terms of breath and depth and subtlety of what's moving in that situation, yeah, you probably will be more skillful in how you respond. But even that idea that that's what I need to do gets in the way of doing it. So that's why I said early on in the talk that this awareness, this intimate presence, this embodied presence with our life is our devotional object. And some of us are devotional types. It's sort of, you know, different people have different personality types. And if you are, you know, if you have that sort of devotional energy just built into your personality, then by all means, get on your knees, bow down, not to the Buddha, right? But the whole point is 
this whole thing with Buddhist statues, that happened centuries after the time of the Buddha. Right? But bow down to this something being known. I mean, it's in early Buddhism, it's not some, it doesn't inspire us to build a stupa, you know, a big temple around something being known. But it's actually, uh, in, it, it moves our heart in a way that like nothing else does. When the mind actually sees the simplicity of this truth, it's earth-shaking, really. Nuts or socks off. Because the heart recognizes, this is this huge, I mean, paradigm shift doesn't even seem to do it justice, but a huge revolution in the heart and mind. From a mind operating with that basic story that I mentioned a few times already, I'm a deluded, screwed up human being who's working hard to become some other kind of human being. And in Buddhism we call that, a lot of you know, becoming. That's becoming energy. I'm here and I want to become that. This is not okay. What I imagine is over there, that's okay. And that whole dance of becoming is what we call dukkha. That's suffering. Thinking there's somebody who has to become somebody, somebody who has to get somewhere, is the root of suffering. And what the Buddha says is medicine for that habit is to get interested in the here and now, which means we're looking through that story without being confused by the story of being a deluded human being who needs to practice in order to become enlightened. We look through it. We don't try to replace it. We just practice not being confused. That's just a story being known. And it's our habit, so you don't have to get rid of that habit to think. I'm a deluded human being, a mixed up person, trying to get my act together in order to become happy. And, you know, as stories go, that's a relatively wholesome story. There's certainly more neurotic, toxic, self-destructive stories for human beings to be repeating to themselves. So we don't have to get rid of it. We have to get interested it's sort of, this is the paradigm shift. We just leave that whole framework behind and we get interested in a new framework. Something is being known. Something is being known. Something is being known. And this is our mindfulness practice. And it's the most frustrating thing in the whole world. Because in terms of the existing story and the habit of being dependent, identified with that story, I'm screwed up, I'm practicing in order to be free. Just being with the, this is being known feels like we're wasting our time when I could be practicing in order to become free. So, you know, part of the point of a talk on mindfulness and training our mind to stay open, that freedom and mindfulness come together. There's something in that experience of this is being known. And you have to really play with the this is being known all day long. It's not just about when you're sitting, but really all day long. I'll just read what the 
Buddha says about this. This is just in terms of our mindfulness of the body. Whoever pervades the great ocean with one's awareness encompasses whatever rivulets flow down into the ocean. In the same way, whoever develops and pursues mindfulness immersed in the body encompasses whatever skillful qualities are on the side of clear knowing. So like I said earlier, it doesn't really matter. So let's just use our body. It's such an available experience. And it has so many just ordinary benefits of being present with the body, befriending the body, learning to be intimate with the body. When we're sitting, could be the breathing process in the body or just the general sense of the body sitting. Not always. Generally, you know, when we're inclined to look at the pain, like tension in our shoulder, we're probably in the mode of wanting to fix. I'm screwed up. I'm practicing in order to make this tension in my shoulder go away. Right? So that's generally why we orient more towards a whole body awareness. Because then we're not like highlighting the aches over the more neutral places in the body. Because if you always want to look at the pain in your body, chances are there's either greed or aversion or some kind of delusion operating. I'm not saying it's wrong because pain can actually be a real support in connecting with the body. But wanting to get rid of pain is not a support for connecting with the body. It's a support for hate and fear and anger and all the different flavors of aversion. So we have to be on the lookout for that habit. And he goes, there's more to this sutta, this discourse of the Buddha talking about the body. He says in another place, when one thing is practiced and pursued, the body is calmed, the mind is calmed, thinking and evaluating are stilled, And all the qualities on the side of clear knowing go to their culmination. What one thing? Mindfulness immersed in the body. When one thing is practiced and pursued, ignorance is abandoned. Clear knowing arises. The conceit I am is abandoned. Latent tendencies are uprooted. Fetters are abandoned. Which one thing? Mindfulness immersed in the body. Those who do not taste mindfulness of the body do not taste the deathless, which is a synonym for freedom. Those who taste mindfulness of the body taste the deathless. Those who are heedless of mindfulness of the body are heedless of the deathless. Those who comprehend mindfulness of the body comprehend the deathless. Furthermore, this is from a different discourse. Furthermore, when walking... The practitioner discerns, I am walking. When standing, one discerns, I am standing. When sitting, one discerns, I am sitting. Or you could say, sitting is being known. When lying down, lying down is being known. Or however one's body is disposed, that is how one discerns it. And as one remains thus heedful, ardent, resolute, Any memories and resolves related to the household life are abandoned. Household life is like code for becoming. You know, wanting to get something, wanting to get rid of something, wanting to fix something, 
that's, the Buddha puts down, worldly existence, in the sense of that ordinary striving to get somewhere, because wherever we get, we're just going to want to get somewhere else. Have you ever met somebody who doesn't want to get somewhere? Including like where we might get is like, I want to get to the place where I can hold on to everything I've gotten. But that's still a becoming energy, right? Where I can really lock in all the good stuff I have right now. So it never goes away. See, it never ends. Becoming never, any kind of craving really, never brings somebody to the place where there's no craving. Craving just leads to more craving. Becoming leads to more becoming. And the Buddha, he has very graphic images about how long our hearts, our minds have been caught up in endless rounds of becoming. Now, who knows? One more paragraph to read here. Furthermore, when going forward and returning, one makes oneself fully alert when looking toward and looking away, when bending and extending one's, one's limbs, when carrying one's cloak, upper robe, or bowl, when eating, drinking, chewing, savoring, when urinating, defecating, when walking, standing, sitting, falling asleep, waking up, talking, remaining silent, one makes oneself fully alert. This is being known. It's like this. And as one remains thus heedful, ardent, resolute, any memories, resolves related to the household life, right, related to habits of becoming or abandon. And with their abandoning, the mind gathers and settles inwardly, grows unified and centered. This is how a practitioner develops mindfulness immersed in the body. And just ending with this point, you know, initially, you know, Shelley and I get it because we know this from our own personal practice experience. Initially, there's a real torment in the continuity and starting over and starting over and coming back to being in the body, coming back to breathing, coming back to walking, feeling the whole body, hearing sounds. It can feel like a torment, like, oh my God, what have I signed up for? But this continuity and this interest in this is being known starts, if we give it enough, if we have a kind of uh, build up enough momentum where we're doing it out of real interest, not because of a should, I should do this, I'm told to do this, but we're really bringing in a more authentic interest. What is the Buddha pointing to? Let's check and see if there's anything to what the Buddha is talking about. Right? If we give it that kind of fresh interest, then that continuity really starts to have a flavor of bliss. There's like a scent or flavor of freedom just in the simple, oh yeah, this is being known. This is being known. And that freedom isn't because of what's there, it's because of what's not there. Right? It's the absence of neurotic becoming. The absence of the mind wrongly being dependent on what's being known, what's being experienced. But is content just in the knowing. This is being known. This is being felt. 
it's like this now. Whether we're talking about an experience of the mind that's being known, like thinking is being known, or planning mind is being known, or we're knowing something in the body, a sensation, throbbing is being known, or hearing is being known. Because it's really about purifying that way of relating. So the way of relating is empty of greed, and empty of fear, empty of becoming, empty of dependence or identification. It's just the integrity of something being known. That's, that's, like I said, it's our devotional object. That we have this, all of us, everybody's mind, there is this capacity to be in this simple way. So we're going to do some walking practice for just 15 minutes. And again, instead of trying hard to do the walking practice right so you'll get some spiritual goody, when you catch that, you just smile serenely like, oh yeah, that's not the way. That's the way to tension. Right? And I feel it. So that can be abandoned without you trying to do it right. That's the key. Let go of the wrong way of practicing, like trying to get something from your walking practice. And that's why you hear funny things like teachers say, well, just be natural. Or how many times has a teacher told us, relax, <laughs> endlessly, right? So relax. <laughs> and thanks for listening, everyone. So just take a few seconds, like go the words, and then we'll do some walking practice. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org.